in God's story in the life of Solomon were really at a high point in Israel's opportunity. The Bible cover to cover really shows that God is the pursuer of his creation. He made us to enjoy him and to love him forever, first on earth and later with him in, in glory. And when mankind walked away from him, when we disobeyed him and defied him, he pursued us. He began that work with Abraham. And now with David handing off the throne to his king Solomon, to his son Solomon, Israel, as they've never been before in their history, are poised to fulfill God's will. They've never had an opportunity quite like this. They have peace they never had in David's day. Solomon will build the temple, which will stand as one of the marvels of the ancient world, a place that by its, though small, by its magnificence, will show in some small way the magnificence of the God that they built it to worship. And more than anything else, now Israel has a time of unprecedented witness to be literally a shining light in a very dark place that are going to live such righteous, loving, holy, compassionate lives that the nations around them, this was God's original plan, would be drawn to him through what he was doing in the life of Israel. David had been a man of war, and he had wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, you've been a man of war and the sword and bloodshed. You won't do that. You'll gather the resources. Your son Solomon will build it, and he will reign. Solomon, if the name is unfamiliar to you outside of the, his proverbial and legendary wisdom, is one of the most prolific authors in the Old Testament. Solomon was so wise, in fact, that he gave us essentially three books of the Bible. He wrote the Song of Solomon, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he wrote most of the book of Proverbs. And if I could digress for just a minute, let me give you a Bible reading tip for life. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. If you will read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month every day for the rest of your life, that will repay you in wisdom like you cannot begin to believe, and I can't really explain to you. To make sure that I'm clear, today is the 12th, so today you would read chapter 12, and so on for the rest of your life. I don't have time to tell you those stories, but being reminded in stressful situations at two different parts of my life, once I was saved, really, my ministry was saved by remembering something that Solomon had written down in Proverbs. Later, I was saved of incurring a debt that would have cost me basically or two or three months' pay because I remembered Solomon's wisdom not to take on other people's debts. Okay? So it, it's an actual truth. If you'll take the time to read the wisdom that God gave Solomon that he recorded in the book of Proverbs, it will make you wise beyond your years and save you all kinds of trouble and lead you into all kinds of blessings. Solomon had that wisdom because early in his life, he knew what he was stepping into. He knew that his father, David, had paved the way for him to be a king of unprecedented success. And he started well because he knew he needed God. And Crosspoint is all about making disciples. In other words, the purpose of our church is to obey Jesus by helping ourselves, helping each other, helping people who don't know Jesus yet follow him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
to think, to feel, to believe, to behave like Jesus would want us to. That's what we're about. And one way to understand discipleship is it is the struggle between you leaning on your own wisdom and leaning on the wisdom of God. Early on in Solomon's life, he knew what a huge promotion he'd been given. And he knew he needed God. So when God appeared to him in a dream early in his kingship, this is what happened. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Now put yourself in that situation. If you can go back to about a thousand years ago. If you had this epic opportunity to ask for anything in the world. What would you ask for? Solomon made a wise choice. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Listen to the dependence. Listen to his self-concept and how much he depends upon God. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? One of the Bible study tips I share with Bible study leaders and people who are studying the Bible at home with their families is, ask yourself how you would explain this passage to an eight-year-old, particularly an eight-year-old boy, okay? So let's apply that test to it. If you read that passage to your eight-year-old who's staring at the ceiling and counting the laces in his tennis shoes, okay, how would you explain this to him? At the heart of it, what is Solomon asking for? That was an underwhelming response. What, uh, what, is, what is Solomon asking for? Wisdom. He said, God, I don't know what to do. There's a tremendous humility in his self-concept. He said, God, I'm, I'm a little child. This is a big nation. My father walked with you well, but I'm just a, just a child. I don't know how to go out and I don't know how to come in. A proverbial way of saying, I can't handle this. I don't know what to do. I can't live one day with this task on me. Solomon depended upon God, in other words. So he asked, being given a wide-open opportunity, a blank check, to ask God for anything he pleased, he asked for what counted most. He asked for wisdom. And God said, because you've asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything else that kings always worry about. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you success. I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. You're going to be unprecedented in the history of the world, Solomon. And you're all going to do it because you have humbly asked me for wisdom. What that tells us is that dependence on God gives you discernment for life. Every stupid, foolish, reckless, harmful, regretful thing that I've ever done in my life has this common thread. At a certain point in my life, I thought to myself, I can handle this. 
And for those of you who are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, that temptation grows bigger and bigger because your natural inclination as you continue to walk through life is to bank on your experience and your past success and not to continually see yourself as someone who is overwhelmed with a task that is too great for you. The beginning of Solomon's wisdom is how he saw himself in comparison to the task he had been given. He wrote about it in Proverbs, and this is what he said. This is the heart of the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 7. We'll read this. In fact, we'll learn this together as a church. If you don't know it by heart, you will in about one minute. Will you read this with me? The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fool in Proverbs is not an unintelligent or ignorant person. The fool in Proverbs is someone who does not account for God in life, who does not seek God, does not depend upon God, does not ask himself, what does God value, what does God want in this situation? That's why the Psalms say, for instance, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I don't answer to anyone but myself. That, the Bible says, is the heart of foolishness. On the contrary, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Real knowledge, real understanding begins by a reverent knowledge, a reverent relationship with God. In the Bible's concept, fear isn't cowering or cringing because you're about to be struck. Fear is reverence. Fear is awe that leads you to worship and obedience, to take God into account and do what he says. So... We'll say this twice more, and I bet you'll have it. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs will do this over and over again. It will show you two paths and invite you toward wisdom. It will invite you to listen to the voice of God in spite of every cultural current once more, and you've got it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. When Solomon was writing this down, it pictured his life. Later, he said in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And that's not, again, that's not emotion. That's not merely affective, having to do with the affections or the emotions of your heart. To trust in the Lord with all your heart means total dependence. It's not just a good feeling in musical worship where the the band hits that right chord and you get warm fuzzies. That's great. But this picture is much more than that. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart means that you live where Solomon started, saying to God, I can't handle this. I can't go through life and please you unless I lean completely on you. Watch the contrast. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, most people who have read the Bible know that verse. My goodness, that's a tall order to not lean on your own understanding. I mean, I think I'm right just about all the time. Don't you? Don't you think you're right? Every argument you've ever had with your spouse, don't you think you're right? If you didn't think you're right, you wouldn't be arguing. You would just say, where I eventually end up. You're, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is in human nature to choose the way of the fool and lean on your own understanding. 
This is especially true once you've got a few wins under your belt, once you've succeeded, once God has blessed and given you peace, given you prosperity, opened doors for you, given you friends, blessed your family. You're especially prone to lean on your own understanding. It goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, again, this is wisdom often couched in poetic language. What does it mean for God to make straight your path? That means success according to God. And that's a big, big part of following Jesus too. Every culture, every group of people defines success according to what it values. A good definition of culture is a people's understanding of the best way to thrive. That means that this culture in the United States in 2015, we have... Sometimes accounting for God's wisdom and many more times accounting for our own. We have built a picture. We have a mental portrait of what it looks like to succeed in our day. So let's step back. Consider ourselves missionaries to America for a second. Help me describe. I know this participatory. And if you grew up in church and there was only one guy that was allowed to speak, this might make you a little bit uncomfortable, but you're invited to participate anyway. Okay. Help me describe success according to contemporary America's understanding. You are successful when you have or do what? You have what? You have money. Money's big. If you have money, that, that as much as anything, that is an immediate designator of someone whose path is straight. What else? Pardon? Authority, if you can be in charge, if you can be a person of influence, a person of respect, what else? Beauty. Absolutely. Proverbs will address that later and say that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Yeah. We live in a culture where... A 30-year-old woman in the entertainment world is getting a little old. Okay? We've seen people famously destroy, I mean, physically destroy their appearance trying to preserve it. What else? Pardon? Good house. All the, all the trappings that come with material success. If I could digress for one more minute to try to apply, hopefully not digress, but apply this passage. If I could speak to the women in the church for just a second. A woman wiser than I has opened my mind up to this idea. For most men, visual lust, desire that comes through the eyes is a lifelong battle. She says for most women, what lust is to men, comparison is to women. Comparison of what? Pretty much everything. Kids, houses, husband, careers, whatever you've set your mind in, there is a continual, and we see that for both genders. That is really magnified, I think, in our section of the country in Orange County. We're in the comparison game all the time. Now, what does this have to do with Proverbs? Everything. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That last phrase means, I believe, God will give you a life that he considers successful. 
It may not be the portrait of what your culture has designated as success, but if you trust in him with all your heart, you refuse to lean on your own understanding, you're acknowledging him in everything you're doing, he will then take over, and because of your dependence on him, he will craft, he will give you a life of which he is proud of, even if the wider culture does not esteem it, even if the world around you does not consider you by its standards a success. There's one more thing that we have to understand from what Solomon is wisely teaching us here. He said, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And that word acknowledge sounds a little weak. Don't you think? Acknowledge to me is the index finger I point at a neighbor as I'm driving out of the neighborhood and he makes eye contact with me. You do this? We have a pretty friendly little neighborhood, so we will drive slowly through the neighborhood And they'll look at me as I drive out, and I'll give them one of these. (laughs) One index finger, one wink, and what we've done there is acknowledge each other. There's a guy in my life who will remain nameless for about eight months. I've been trying to get him to acknowledge me. It's going to happen. (laughs) I drive by him. Sometimes I wave big to see if I can up the ante and grant an acknowledgement, and he just stares right at me. I've wondered actually what goes on there that he just steadfastly refuses to acknowledge my humanity. It's strange. Well, I read the word acknowledge here and I get a mental picture of someone just tipping their hat to God. That's not what it means. The Hebrew root word here is this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. And he will make straight your paths. In all your ways, know him and he will give you a life that he considers successful. What that means is, the Proverbs, the wisdom that young Solomon is offering us in Proverbs, in his utter dependence on God is, you can't handle life on your own. The very beginning of understanding life is to have reverence for God. It's him you need to lean on with your whole heart. You don't need to rely on your own understanding Know him, seek him, talk to him, hear from him in everything you do, and he will give you success according to his standard. That's Solomon in Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. And life in Israel is good. One of the truisms of the Bible and one of the truisms of life is that good leaders lead to good times. Bad leaders lead to bad times. Israel is now poised to live out its purpose. It's going to be a witness like it never has been before. When the temple is built, built Solomon with a heart relying on God looks past Israel and his own life to understand what God said from the beginning, that Israel would be a witness to the whole world. And he prayed this. Likewise, to God, he prayed at the dedication of the temple. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Poetic ways of saying, God, they're going to hear what you've done here. A few hundred years ago, we were a nation of slaves. We didn't belong to ourselves. We were in captivity in someone else's nation. But people are going to hear how you've brought us here, how you've given us a land, how you've subdued all of our enemies around us, how you've prospered and blessed us and given us this place to worship you. When the foreigner hears all that, when he comes and prays toward this house, 
here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Did you know missions is in the Old Testament? It's right here. Solomon is standing directly under God's understanding of the world, and he can see the whole world ahead of him. And he says, God, all the nations, all the tribes and clans of the earth are going to hear what you've done here, and they're going to come, and they're going to call out to you. And when they do, would you please answer them so that they may love and trust you like we do? It's in the Old Testament. This is First Kings. I mean, this is, this is a bases-loaded home run in Israel's history. They've got it all going on. Jesus will later cleanse the temple famously by turning over the tables, casting out, running out the money changers. What most people don't pay too much attention to is what Jesus said. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Hearkening back to the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, Solomon literally stands alone in the history of mankind as a wise man who saw and lived life according to God's own standard. So the question is, how did it all go so terribly wrong? Because if you did your reading this week, it didn't end well. How does someone who writes essentially three books of the Bible, who gives us foundational wisdom, some of the scriptures that Christian parents teach their children from their youngest days, something that is so fundamental, how did he make such a terrible mess of it? The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. Remember, in narrative, repetition is an exclamation point. That's the slow motion in the movie that's telling you, listen, this is the key to the story. Solomon, it says, clung to these in love. And that was his undoing. Deuteronomy 17 said that the king of Israel should not have many horses, not have many wives, and should write down a copy of what Moses had told the nation of Israel. The first two prohibitions were to keep their hearts dependent on him. You see, in Solomon's day, wives meant political alliances. Wives meant peace. If he is married into the royal household of all those nations, they're not going to come attack him. If he doesn't have a large army, he's going to say with King David, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Solomon was, uh, the king was also told to write these things down to keep them in front of them so that his heart would stay true to God. But there came a time in Solomon's life where he welcomed relationships into his life that drew his heart away from the Lord. And it was disastrous. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Those aren't mistresses. Those are, in the ancient world, second-class wives. 
and his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Here's how bad it got. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place, in other words, an altar, a place of worship, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings. And sacrifice to their gods. Now you read a lot of ugly ancient names there. And you notice that the narrator tells you twice these gods are an abomination. You know why? Because those gods welcome child sacrifice. In other words, what you have is an author of the Bible, not someone who merely heeded God's wisdom, but who wrote it down, and someone who has given us wisdom that we can read for ourselves 3,000 years later, building altars where gods are worshipped that welcome babies and sacrifice to them. How did he ever get so far from God? He gave his heart to foolish people. He thought he was wise enough to disobey God into a single, in a single point. He thought he was wise enough, successful enough, safe enough, stable enough to handle it, and he was wrong. When First Kings says that his wives drew his heart away from God, the Hebrew literally says and means they bent his heart. And that really is the heart of this story. That's why this is written down as a warning for us. You say, well, come on now. 700 wives, 300 concubines, I can barely handle the wife I have. This story doesn't have a lot of connection with me. No great danger of me marrying 700 women. I can't afford the one I have. What does this have to do with me? This. The people you give your heart to will shape it. You're called a disciple of Jesus to love everyone, including and beginning with your enemies. But you need to be very careful who you give your heart to. There are a few people in life beginning in your own home, your marriage, your close friends, your business partners, if that moves from mere professionalism into a heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, we trust each other, we've suffered together, we have adventures together. When it gets to a deep, intimate relationship and you give your heart to someone, you are at risk of having them bend your heart away from God rather than you bending their heart back toward Him. When you make your friends... Then your friends turn around and make you. And ungodly relationships can turn the wisest among us into foolish, idolatrous, destructive fools. The striking thing to me about the story of Solomon is that he knew better. A common understanding of discipleship is that if you accumulate Bible knowledge, you'll be okay. And it's not true. I could literally take the rest of the morning. I could talk to you until lunchtime about men and women, but particularly men who have known the Bible better than I ever will, who have followed in Solomon's footsteps. Some of them with women, others in pursuit of money, 
others in pursuit of notoriety or fame, which they posture as taking care of their family, in pastors' cases of having and enjoying ministry success or giving the gospel to more people. And the disaster is the people that they chose to give their heart to. When you have an open-hearted, heart-to-heart relationship with someone, whether it's family or a close friend, your heart is being shaped by that relationship. I have her permission to mention to you a woman who is 92 years old, after the first service, came to me and said, I wish I would have heard that message when I was 35. And her eyes are filled with tears all these years later, nearly 60 years later, because of regrets of her own children who gave their hearts to foolish friends who did not account for God and are so far from him today that their response back to their godly 92-year-old mother is, Mother, look at our lives. Why do we need God? You say, well, that's extreme. This is extreme. You have the man who told you that the very beginning of understanding, the basic building block of life is reverence for God, building an altar where he knows a God is worshipped who accepts babies in burning sacrifice to him. Those horrible names of the altars that were built celebrated gods who were in charge of things like drought and famine and death and destruction. What did Solomon try to do? He tried to mix the worlds. He did not fully renounce God. He thought he was wise enough to mix the worlds, to open his heart to alliances and friendships and deep sharing because of his pursuit of pleasure and political satisfaction and alliances. He thought he could handle it, and he was wrong, and we're no better than he is. The sad thing is that any relationship that weakens your love for God invites disaster. Here's how the New Testament explains it. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? This yoking pictures in the ancient world a donkey and an oxen being put together in a, in a two-animal yoke. It's going to be disastrous. They're not going to get any work done. They're only going to destroy each other. The wisdom of the Bible from cover to cover is the people you welcome into your life in deep friendship, in marriage, in counsel, and in wisdom. You open up a situation in which you shape one another's hearts. And not one of us is wise enough to welcome foolish people who do not love God into our lives and give them our hearts for safekeeping and find ourselves better for it. Can I get a little personal and apply this a little bit more? This church, like every church I know, is filled with heartbroken parents who raise their kids to love Jesus and to walk with Him. And we're stunned sometimes in the span of one semester of discovering that their kids had opened up their hearts to foolish people who love pleasure more than God, who love success more than God, who love grades more than God, who love sports more than God, you name it, who defined success on their own terms. And those Christian parents are seeing, sometimes in the span of one semester, their their kid's heart reshaped and remade. I can tell you of countless marriages, some within my extended family, of people who thought they were wise enough, godly enough to date and sometimes marry within my own family, 
men and women who did not know the Lord in the concept that we in seminary called missionary dating. Have you heard about this? Missionary dating is, I love the Lord, she doesn't, but man, she's cute. I bet I can get her to love the Lord. And what happens, sadly, in almost all of those relationships, when you open up your heart and you drink in those people's wisdom and their definition of success, what almost always happens is like trying to pull somebody out of a swimming pool while you're standing out of it. You're eight feet deep in water. I'm going to lean over and try to help you out. What is much more likely to happen? coming in with you. Because the flesh and the devil are wise. They will welcome that young believer and sometimes that old believer in Solomon's case into a world that he has never dealt in, open up his heart to foolishness that he's never seen before, and for a time, nothing will go wrong. And you'll say, see, it makes no difference. It's okay. My parents were My parents are crazy. My parents were legalistic. My parents were just really conservative. My parents don't get it. And in weeks, in months, in years, their heart is misshapen. Their heart is very different. Nobody sets out for this kind of disaster. Compare young Solomon to old Solomon. When Solomon first spoke to God, he said, God, I'm just a child. This is a great nation. There are enemies on every side of us. I can't lead them through this world. I can't tell the difference between good and evil. I don't know how to go out and come back in safely. You're going to have to give me understanding. And God did. And ironically, the very success that God lavished into Solomon's life made himself confident rather than God confident. And he thought he could marry woman after woman and make alliance after alliance and mix the worship of the true God with these false, evil gods and get away with it. And what he got instead was disaster. After Solomon came one of his sons who was twice the fool that Solomon was and that led to a civil war which was never mended. What happened after Solomon was this. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Some Bible students have hopefully theorized, based on their reading of the book of Ecclesiastes, which shows a broken man who finds no pleasure on earth. Solomon must have written that in his old age. They had theorized that Solomon's heart turned and came back to God. The historical record that we read this week in 1 Kings doesn't give a hint of that. He may have. I hope he did. There's no way of knowing for sure. Ironically, the wisest man on earth ends up reminding me much more of King Saul than he did of his father, King David. You see, a man that was so soaked in pleasure and self-satisfaction and success 
that he lived out his last days knowing that the good days that he enjoyed would end as soon as he died, and they did. Solomon's legacy was idolatry and civil war. The northern kingdom of Israel would never again have a godly king, and both nations would be defeated and driven from the land within a few hundred years. And it all started because one man thought he was wise enough to give his heart to foolish people and get away with it. And he wasn't. And you can't either. None of us are wise enough to give our hearts to foolish people. So what do you do with this since you'll never have a thousand spouses? Parents, you pray as if your kid's life depended upon it that God will send them godly friends and give them discernment to choose wisely because their friends will shape their future. We have our own proverb in America regarding that. Show me your friends and I'll show you. Have you heard this? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It's true. Proverbs says it like this. The companion of the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools is destroyed. That's true. The people you open your hearts to will shape your life. So parents, pray for your children. And if God gives you the grace of giving them a wise friend who loves the Lord like they do or more than they do, pour every bit of enthusiasm, energy, and money and time that you can into supporting those kinds of friendships. Parents, realize that this war for your heart is never over. Solomon walked away from God and made this abhorrent, mixed religion in his old age. And he lived out his days knowing that after he died, war would come. What a terrible legacy. Understand, parents, that you growing in godliness and grace into your old age pictures for your kids whether it's worth it or not. If your kids see you becoming more casual about following Jesus... If your kids see you in any way choosing something above loyalty and allegiance to God, they're learning lessons that it doesn't matter as much, maybe, as the pastor says on Sunday, or you said one day. When you open up your heart to somebody, you're giving them permission. You're inviting them to shape your heart for you. So be very, very wise. For those of you who are single, maybe always have been single, maybe once married and now single. It's very likely that God made you for marriage and you want to be married and that's part of his future for your life. Be very careful that the loneliness doesn't drive you into sin and that you settle for foolishness. That's part of my family story. People who, in pursuing beauty or in pursuing strength, or in pursuing success, gave their heart to somebody else, signing off on the American dream rather than God's picture, clearly disobeying the the words of Scripture, and ended up regretting it for the rest of their lives. And children who grew up in those homes so far from God that it remains a brokenhearted situation 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. When you welcome this kind of foolishness into your heart that Proverbs itself says, above all other things, guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. 
When you welcome foolishness into your life, you invite disaster and there's no controlling of the consequences. So be wise and godly and humble. And if the relationship isn't drawing you to the Lord and you're not helping that person draw to the Lord, remain friends, love them still, but don't, for the love of God, literally don't give them your heart. None of us are wise enough to give our precious hearts to foolish people. Would you pray with me now, please? Can I invite you to make a mental survey of the people you're closest to and just take them to the Lord with this question, which way are the arrows pointing? Are they pointing away from God or toward Him? Folks who are single and want to be married, some of you are amazing trophies of God's grace. Hang on. Don't settle. Don't alleviate what is only momentary loneliness and welcome in a lifetime of sadness. Parents, I know when I talk about kids being changed in a single semester, I know that hurts some of your hearts and I feel it deeply in mine. We've had kids who've led worship in this church, who have been spiritual leaders in this church, who are so far from God right now. We're all puzzled by it. All of our hearts are broken about it. God hasn't given up on your kids. He is the pursuer. He is the redeemer. Trust him. Pray for them. And welcome around yourself godly people who have been there who can encourage you forward. Keep your heart in alliance with people who will bring you closer to Jesus. Not cool your relationship with him. Because you've got those people who are close to you that you've given your heart to in marriage, in friendship, in partnership, in business. Ask yourself that question and take them humbly to the Lord and declare your dependence on Him so that He'll do what He wants in all of those spheres. Lord, there's, there's absolutely no way any one of us can please you without relying completely upon you. And that's so difficult because we think we're so wise. You give blessings and we think, Lord, the temptation that is whispered in our ear is that we've got it together now and we can move on on our own and we can't. Lord, I pray blessing and peace and provision for everyone here who has been had their their friendships and their family hurt by foolish friendships and relationships. I pray for marriages that are unequally yoked, for kids who are far from you, for singles who seem, Lord, to be waiting forever for the spouse of your choice to come along. Give us all, Lord, a continued reliance on you to wait on you, to wait on your time. Send us good friends, renew friendships and godliness that will lead us ever closer to you and help every one of us not be drawn away from you, but instead be a loving witness to those who still don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.